We're going to turn to Mark chapter 2. So if you can head there. Does any, anybody not have a Bible and they would want the scripture for this morning? I printed them off, so does anybody need a sheet with the passage this morning? A couple back there? Okay. Okay, everyone's done. Mark chapter 2, 1 to 12. We will not stand quite yet. I'll just give a little bit of an intro, and then we will go for it. So as you know, uh, we're in a sermon series uh, regarding what is the gospel message. The Greek word meaning good news. Good news. And if you remember from last week, we made the statement that one can't fully appreciate the good news unless they have properly understood the bad news. And the big takeaway from last week's message was that every person, every human, left to their own devices, their own merits, as Kelly was saying, are in God's bad books. Yes, we're created in His image, but we have a problem, and that is sin. Now, all of us have committed the same sin as Adam and Eve, and the big message from last week was that even though God is our Creator, and created us to be dependent on Him, we have all signed our own Declaration of Independence. Every human being has signed an independent declaration. And that is basically, Lord, we don't need you. I got this. Leave me alone. Sometimes we do it uh, on an hourly basis. Sometimes we do it maybe on a daily basis. But regardless, through our lifetime, we've all done this. And so we don't want him to rule over our lives. And as a result, then we're guilty of eternal judgment and a life of separation from God. However, as we said right from the get-go, this is a sermon series titled, The Good News, Not the Bad News. And so God has gone to great lengths to repair what we have broken. And so from here on in, for the rest of the from now to the end of summer, when I go, before I go on holidays, <laughs> we're going to now look at the good news and the ways God has sought to save us. And we're going to start with forgiveness, even though I've made the many declarations that the gospel is more than forgiveness. But let's start with the primary one, and we'll move forward. So please stand with me and read Mark chapter 2, 1 to 12. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them, and they came bringing him a paralytic, carried by four men. And being unable to get him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let it down, let down on the pallet which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning with, about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, pick up your mat, and go home. And he got up immediately, picked up the pallet, and went out in the sight of everyone. 
so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Easy to see. Well, in the opening scene in verse 1, Jesus has come back home to his stomping grounds, a place called Capernaum. And he had just come out of a demanding ministry season. In one, chapter 1, verse 45, it says that he went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out of unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. So Jesus has clearly been busy preaching his gospel, healing the sick, and so on. And so he's come home. Now when he arrives in Capernaum, nothing changes. <laughs> home does not become a place of R&R and a place to put his head. It's a place that's going to continue in a busy season. And so we pick this up on verse 1 and 2. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathering together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. What I appreciate about this verse is that Mark records the very thing he was speaking about right from the beginning. He understood Jesus, the picture or the, or the purpose of the gospel. He knew that it was meant to be public news with public implications. And so here he is in a home outside a synagogue setting, outside the church walls, if you will, using every opportunity to make his gospel public. And I love the observation here. It says that while he was in the home, he was speaking the word to them. He was speaking to the word to them. He was, having a, he was in a sermon. He was discipling them in the scriptures. Now, what was he saying? It's not told to us there, but we get a clue in chapter 1 and verse 14. It says that when John had take, been taken into prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the kingdom, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. A big part of his message would have been to the crowds, um, I love you, but you're not living rightly. And you need to change your ways. And go the way that I'm going to tell you to go. So although physical healing was part of his ministry, and the body was important to the Lord, and he was often compassionate in healing people, the type of sickness he really came to deal with was spiritual. The primary sickness in which he came to deal with was spiritual. And the need for forgiveness. So Jesus is preaching, and in the middle of his sermon, he's suddenly interrupted. In verse 3, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Being unable to get to him, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. I want you to picture this scene from two perspectives. First perspective is you as the friends, bringing the paralytic to Jesus, and then uh, you as the crowd who are witnessing this happening. So let's start with the friends. You get a real sense of their desperation for their friend, because they, and we also get an understanding of who they believe can be the friend's healer. Their friend is a paralyzed person. We don't know for how long, but we assume for a long time. And they clearly have a belief 
and a hope that Jesus is the one to bring physical healing. So they've clearly heard about this guy and what he's done in the past, and they know he's come to town. So you get a sense of their desperation. And upon arrival, they got a problem. The crowds are jamming the door, and so they can't get in. And so we see in their desperation how far they're willing to go to ensure that their paralytic friend will not be denied. And they go to extreme measures. They, they climb, somehow they climb the roof, the building, or the, the, the house, and they tear the roof apart. Now, it's possible to do that in their culture because of what the materials are our homes. They weren't exactly tearing down two-by-fours and shingles, but they had their own version of these things. But they was easily dismantled. And so, you can see again, they're, they're so desperate for their friend that they'll tear, tear apart someone else's home for the sake of getting in, in the presence of Jesus. The crowds have a, a different perspective because they're already there. But they're trying to listen to Jesus and then all of a sudden, there's a commotion. There's a commotion because as you're trying to listen to Jesus, you all of a sudden hear the scrambling on the roof. And maybe sunshine starts to appear on you in increasing measures as the hole gets bigger and bigger. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm easily distracted in situations like this. Almost like the look squirrel thing, right? You can imagine, like, you're listening and then looking and then listening and then looking. And then next thing you know, you're not listening to Jesus anymore because you're watching this man be lowered from the roof. So the whole thing is interrupted. And you're part of the crowd watching this. A pretty unusual scene. And I wish Mark recorded the homeowner's reaction to all of this. I wonder if he called the local insurance company after the whole thing was done. But by the end of verse 4, the friends have succeeded, and the paralyzed friend has been brought to Jesus. And here's where the story gets interesting. Let's look at verse 5. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Whenever studying a passage, a good question to ask is, what surprised you most in what you read? What surprised you most in what you read? It's a great question to ask when studying a passage. If you and I didn't have the rest of Mark, and the story ended at verse 4, with the paralytic coming into the home, from everything you know of the scriptures in Jesus, what would you have expected Jesus to say and do when a paralytic is lowered to the floor? I know what I would think without any other further verses. Any further verses. Number one, Jesus, if he said anything, would have addressed his physical health. Like, what do you want me to do for you? Or do you want to get well? Or he wouldn't have said anything. He might have just walked up to him and declared healing over his body. But that's not what happens. Instead, he makes a shocking statement that surprises, especially the religious leaders. Jesus takes the paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, like I mentioned here earlier, these words would have shocked and aggravated the religious leaders. But I'm going to suggest it would have amazed the crowds, and even the paralytic as well. 
Everyone present, including this paralytic man, would have thought that his greatest need was his physical health. The crowds, the friends, the man himself would have thought, if only this person could be healed, everything in life would be great. Everything in life would be perfect. My greatest need is dealt with. After all, his situation was completely hopeless. But Jesus revealed this was not the case. For the Lord, the body at this moment was not the most important thing to him. He knew the true condition that the man needed healing from, and that was a spiritual one. And not that the body is not important to the Lord. We see him many times healing people out of compassion. But Jesus knew that this man's primary need was the forgiveness of sins, his relationship with God himself. 2,000 years later, nothing has changed. People, maybe here today, maybe even in the, the community, don't think that their biggest problem is their spiritual condition before God. People don't realize today that their biggest problem is that they need to be forgiven. Because we don't fully understand in our culture the consequences of unforgiveness and the eternal consequences that will have. People think, if I could only get healthier, skinnier, stronger, smarter, richer, more athletic, if everything in my family relationally would just get better, if I could get married, if I could find a partner, if I could be in tune with myself, everything would be good and problems would disappear. If Jesus was to take you one-on-one, -on -one, privately, in the corner of this church after service, he would say to every single one of you, those things are fine, but your biggest need is forgiveness. It's about you and me and the eternal consequences that I've come to for you. Well, just like Jesus' words would shock our culture today, it definitely shocked the religious leaders. Look at verse 7. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? What's important about the religious leaders' comments is that they were absolutely right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's a true statement. Only God can. In Isaiah 43, verse 25, God is speaking. He says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. To forgive sins is God's prerogative. It's a divine prerogative reserved for him alone. And Jesus makes the declaration, your sins are forgiven. And so he's actually making the claim right there that he is equal and on par with God in terms of authority. That is why they make the claim he's blaspheming, which was a, was a, a, a stonable offense, one that you could be killed for, proclaiming to be deity. But Jesus puts him on the same, himself on the same level playing field as Yahweh, 
And so Jesus then, knowing what's in their hearts, goes to task to prove that he has the authority to do the very thing that is reserved for God alone. And so in verse 8, he immediately knew, aware of his spirit, that they were reasoning that within themselves, saying, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. This comment, which is easier to say, which is easier to say, pick up your pallet and, or, and go home, or to forgive sins, is actually a de highly debated issue. I thought it was pretty simple and straightforward, but there's a lot of ink spilt as to which one Jesus meant was easier. I'm going to give you my suggestion, and uh, based on how I see the text playing out, but I'm not going to be opposed to hearing other people's opinions on this. Because Jesus actually doesn't define it. He just makes a declaration. So which one is easier? I actually believe that what is easier is actually to say, your sins are forgiven. And the reason is, is that no one can actually check that. There's no tangible way to actually know that. So if I go to Stephanie and she's talking about her some sin in her life, and I hear her talk about it, I can say to her, your sins are forgiven. But if she came to me paralytic, and I said to her, pick up, your, pick up yourself and walk away, which one's harder? <laughs> Probably a lot easier to declare her sins are forgiven for, than for me to have the confidence that she's going to rise off her mat and just walk home. Again, many people have other thoughts on this, but I believe that he's actually saying it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. The problem is the people there didn't believe that. So what Jesus goes to do then is he chooses to heal the man as a proof of authenticating his claim that he had power, the power and the right to forgive sins. So you want to make fun of me? You think I can't forgive sins? I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to physically heal this man and make him go home to declare and demonstrate to you that not I have authority not only in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. So if he doesn't rise off his mat, he actually looks like a phony in his power to forgive sins. But the fact that he raised from, the, from his mat and walked home showed that he had the same authority as God. He was able to carry out only what God could do. And what happened in the physical realm was a picture of what Jesus can do in the unseen spiritual realm. The healing of the body was a picture of what Jesus does for one's soul. And the result was immediate in verse 12. And it got, he got up and he immediately picked up the pallet and went out of the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. The crowds are stunned, and the paralytic resumed full function. Before we come to a close, I just want to unpack something in here for you. 
Your sins are forgiven. What does that actually mean? What is sin? Well, we can't speak the gospel and proclaim the gospel without naming sin. So let's just take a few minutes to unpack what it actually is. We spoke last week that it's really independence from God. If you want to think of a clothesline analogy, the clothesline from the garden is that everyone seeks to be independent from God and doesn't want Him. But off of that, we can hang sort of three other ways of defining that independence. In Psalm 32, in verse 1, the psalmist declares, How blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. So the psalmist gives you three categories. Sins, transgressions, and iniquity. Now in the Bible, they're often interchangeable. They're often interchangeable, and so it's hard to always sort of determine that like, the heart fast rules between them in defining them. But there are some slight differences that I think can help us to see the big picture of what the paralytic is being redeemed from. So, starting with sin, the Hebrew word is hata, and it just means to miss. It means to miss. In Judges 20 verse 16, we're talking about some soldiers there. It says, among them were 700 chosen men who were left-handed Everyone could sling a stone out of hair and not miss. The word miss is the same word for sin. In the Greek word, in the New Testament, is harmartia. It's an archery term used to mean missing the mark. So to miss the mark was to sin and to lose the prize in archery. And only the bullseye was what won you the prize. Even if you hit the outer rim, you were still considered a misser. So to, it wasn't just simply missing the target. It was hitting the target, but not hitting the bullseye, was still to miss. So perfection was required to win the prize. And all of you know the Robin Hood type movies, right? Right? And they're shooting like, you know, things, and they have to hit the bullseye to actually win the trophy. So how do we define missing the mark? Well, in 1 John 3, 4, he says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawliness. Lawlessness. And when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What's in the law? He says, love God with your whole heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So we sin when we fail to love God perfectly and love our neighbor perfectly as ourselves. It's that simple. We miss the mark of love. And God is love. But even cooler, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what's the glory of God? Well, I love John 1, 14. The Word, Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And the disciples said, we have seen Jesus' glory. So every human being has fallen short of Jesus. His moral code, His moral compass, the way He dealt with situations, His life. He sets the standard by which humanity is judged. And the Bible says, everyone has sinned and fallen short of Jesus' perfection. He's the bullseye that we fail to miss. Transgression. If sin is missing the mark, 
Transgression could be called crossing the line. The Hebrew word is pesha, which means rebellion, and it could be rebellion against human authority or divine authority. And the New Testament defines it as trespassing. And so trespassing, of course, as you know, is to cross the line. It's like walking up to a gate that said, has a sign saying, no trespassing, and going through it anyway. Or um, the having a no parking in a certain parking lot, and you park there anyways. It's crossing a threshold, crossing a line. But there's a bit more to it than that. Trespassing is where you actually know the owner of the property, or the one enforcing the law in the parking lot, and you know that they're going to watch you, but you willfully dis uh, defy the sign anyway. So you proceed without caring, and therefore violate trust. You violate trust. So Jacob and Laban are, are related. Jacob's been serving Laban faithfully. Laban turns on him. His uncle turns on him. And Jacob can't take it anymore, living life under Jacob. Uh, Jacob can't take life anymore, living under Laban's rule. So he, he, he runs away and takes some things, um, takes his wife with him and so on. Laban, cha Laban chases him. Laban chases him because he suspects that Jacob has stolen a bunch of things from his house. And so when Laban catches up and threatens him, Jacob turns to Laban and says, What is my pesha? What is my transgression? How have I wronged you? Because they're in relationship. And, and he has come after him thinking he's stolen something from him and therefore violated his trust. And he says, how have I transgressed you by taking these things from you? Which, and of course, he didn't. But that was his, the choice of word he used to show that there had been a relational violation. Transgressions, then, on our part, or trespassing, is for us to make a deliberate choice to do something of which God has established clear boundaries for us. We know God's law, and we cross the line anyway. So it's more willful, if you will. Finally, if sin is missing the mark and transgression is crossing the line, iniquity can be defined as crooked behavior. The Hebrew word is avon, which means wickedness. But the verb form of the word is avah, which means crooked. Also means perverted or twisted in action or attitude. And so, these kind of actions then are sort of like on the higher, gross, grosser immorality. There's like a, there's like, you know, sins, sin, like it's a sin or like an action that it, or an attitude that is sort of beyond, sort of, if you will, the norm. There's sort of like the heinous things that people do. Now, there's two key features of iniquities. First of all, they're premeditated often. They're often premeditated. So with sins... There may not be premeditated. So I'm not driving to the parking lot going, I'm going to go here and look for the sign, and I'm going to intentionally park against the guy who put the sign there and so on. We're not thinking in those terms. We're just, I'm going to go to a restaurant, and I find the sign. So I'm not premeditating anything. I'm just sort of reacting to my situations around here. Iniquity is premeditated, more so. Micah chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their breads. 
So clearly Micah sees that people are, are thinking about this and how they're going to hurt someone or something. And so intent is key also. It's not just the actions that are measurable, it's the intent behind the actions. So it's a character issue. And so when David, King David, sinned by killing Uriah and committing adultery with Bathsheba, that was premeditated. That was planned out. If you read his story, everything he did was premeditated. He thought about how he's going to commit this crime against God. And so when he is approached by the prophet who uncovers his sin, David says this, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, my premeditated sins, my premeditated uh, issues, my plotting, my planning, and cleanse me from my sin. So where's the good news in all this? <laughs> Since all of us have been guilty of iniquity, transgressions, and sins. Where is the good news? The good news is that forgiveness for all of these things is offered to the cross of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Why? Because Jesus never missed the mark. He died for our transgressions, according to Romans 5.15. But the gracious gift is not like the transgression. For if many died through the transgression of one man, how much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ? This one man talk is Adam. Sin entered the world through Adam, and we all die because we've all sinned as well, like, like Adam. But Jesus came to undo what Adam did and what we've done. So Jesus never crossed the line. And he also died for iniquity. In Isaiah 53, 5, it says that he, Jesus, was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that was brought, oh, sorry, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And so he was never crooked. The issue is we have to make a decision in this lifetime. In Hebrews 9, 27, it says, it is appointed unto man or woman to die once, then the judgment. We die once, then the judgment. There's no such thing as purgatory in the scriptures. You can't pay somebody out of a spiritual holding cell, if you will. And the issue is, there's no sin that won't go unpunished. The question is, who is going to face it? Will it be us, without the forgiveness of Christ? Or, will we accept his loving offer and let him bear it for us? He already did. It's done. But he doesn't force himself on us. We have to choose to receive that love and that forgiveness. And then as Callie said, like, we will be white as snow. The sin blemish is gone. He took the punishment for us in love so that we don't have to. All we have to do is make a decision and say yes to Jesus. Amen to him. So I want to end with a testimony. The paralytic wants to speak to you this morning.
Good morning, Genesis House. I have known that you've uh, just listened to Andrew tell you a story from Mark about my life. The greatest day in my life. I want to speak to you about the profound truths that I know now that I didn't know back then. You see, when my friends and myself came to that house in Capernaum that day, all I was looking for and all I wanted to be free from was the painful existence of the prison that my body lived in. I wanted nothing more than a higher quality of life. My friends were adamant that the only one that could help me was this radical teacher and this radical healer named Jesus. When we went there, my hopes were dashed because the crowds were so big, we couldn't even get to him. But then my friends being so loving and having so much faith went to great lengths to meet the Lord, believing he was the one that could bring me healing. When we broke apart the home, the roof, and was lowered down, when I saw him, when I saw him, I was overcome. And I expected him to talk to me about my physical condition. From everything I knew about him, I expected him to ask me about how long I was paralyzed and what I wanted to be done for myself. But instead, he just looked me in the eyes and to my shock said, I'm here to forgive you for your sins. At the time, I was thinking, well, how in the world did he miss my greatest need? Jesus, like, are you blind? But let me tell you this, Genesis House. I've been with Christ now for 2,000 years. I've been in the presence of the Lord for 2,000 years. And now I fully realize how much His forgiveness is all that matters. As the one who lived the life of living hell on this earth, who has now experienced being in the presence of the Lord and what eternal life is really like, let me tell you this, a few years of paralysis pales in comparison to the joy in the existence I have now. This is important for you to listen to me because I don't want you to miss out on what God has for you. So I don't know where you're at in attendance this morning, but please come to him. Amen. I've got four lessons here. I'm tempted not even to read them because I'll just give them to you quick because some of you enjoy writing things down. This is important. We can't announce the gospel without naming sin. You can't proclaim the good news without talking about it. In Regent College, when I took the course on what is the gospel, at the end, our professor was really awesome. He allowed himself to be questioned by the class, and the class asked him, uh, Daryl, um, 
what's the greatest evangelistic challenge you face as a professor and a pastor in today's world? Professor Johnson said, one of them definitely is naming sin. In a pluralistic society, where anything goes and everything goes, where we're not allowed to tell people from the world's perspective that they're living wrongly and to accept everyone, one of the greatest challenges is to say, listen, all of us are in the same boat. That's one of the greatest challenges. But we can't deny it. Because what did he go to the cross for? If not but sin. And this is why I hope that the three understandings of, of sins help you understand you know, what the differences are. To see how people have fallen short across the line of crooked behavior. Secondly, mankind's greatest need is the need for forgiveness of sin. Jesus demonstrated that. As important as the physical body was to the Lord, it was not our primary need. It wasn't his primary need. Thirdly, Jesus Christ is the only means by which humanity can be forgiven. Gerald Johnson, when asked again what was the greatest issues he faces in spreading the gospel, first of all named, naming sin, but secondly, he called it the scandal of particularity. That's the biggest issue. What do we mean by that? Jesus is the only way. Every religion has a way of handling sin. Every person has a way of handling sin. But, the, but Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12, when Peter was given the gospel, he says there's salvation and no one else under heaven than Jesus Christ. It's a scandal of particularity. One person, one God. No one else is crucified for the world. No one else but him. Finally, Jesus' offer of forgiveness must be received in this lifetime for eternal life to be granted. Once the heart stops and the mind goes, that's it. Jesus loves us like crazy. He wants us to make a decision for him now and receive everything he has to offer. Once the heart stops, it's too late. And so we... Please listen to the paralytics, plead with you, give your life to him now.